Um, you're going to be hearing some things that are not typically uh, taught. Uh, at least this is my experience. And um, I just hope that you'll grant me a little bit of space to bring out some things that we typically do not notice in Scripture, but I believe it's there. And um, um, we have what we call an unfolding revelation. And it's very clear as you study the Scripture that we have not always known the total prophecy that the Bible presents us. God reveals it in, in sections, uh, periods of time that seem to be the best for the time period. Uh, a proof of what we're talking about is what I think we mentioned in our last class. Um, Daniel was told to seal up the book until the end. And the wicked would not understand, but the wise would understand. And so the Lord revealed to Daniel some things that no one else really ever knew. How that at the end of the, the days, speaking of the latter days of the tribulation period, uh, all of those that had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in the Old Testament would be raised from the dead, and that's when they will be raised from the dead. Is at the uh, close of the millennium. That is the Jews that have died in Christ, and Daniel would not have a body until the end of the tribulation period. Uh, at least the eternal glorified body that the Bible teaches. And then you get into the New Testament and the Apostle Paul made it very clear that his ministry was that of revealing mysteries that were hidden in ages past. And so why should it be a strange thing for me to stand up here as a Bible teacher and tell you that God is continuing to unfold uh, an understanding of things that are clearly written in Scripture. But the understanding of it has been sealed until the time of the end. And he makes that very clear in Scripture. So why should it be thought unusual to bring out things in this, in this final book that God has given us called the Revelation, written by the Apostle John, revealing to us insights into eternity, things that have never really been understood before. And so it's not that I'm some kind of new on the block revelator. It's been in the book the whole time. But God has sealed it so that uh, 
we could not look to the very end of it to, to see exactly what the Lord had in mind. Another aspect of the unfolding revelation is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, begins at verse 9, I believe, where the Lord said, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So there's still yet unfolding uh, revelation in Scripture. And I believe throughout all eternity, it's going to continue to unfold. And we're going to see things and understand things we've never seen or understood before. And so all I ask for is your patience, uh, because some of the things that we're going to look at would on the surface, because of traditional teaching, would appear to be uh, maybe even, uh, oh, how would I even say it? I don't know. Uh, totally off base, it might seem to be. But if you'll just think about it with me and follow what I believe is also incorporated in the scripture is the logic of God. God is a logical person. He thinks in a consistent way and in a logical way that we can relate to because he's created us in his image. And he wants us to follow his logic his thoughts as they relate to the real world of created things. And so God is not through creating. And that's what we run into in uh, Revelation chapter 21. Let's read verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And so, one of the things that came to my mind, and I don't know whether you've ever thought about this before, but I don't think that we can examine what I'm fixing to say and say it's, it's not true. There was no one in heaven or in earth to observe the first creation. When God created the heavens, as it is recorded in in uh, Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 2, uh, there was no one, there was no personality anywhere in the universe. There was no Michael, there was no Gabriel, there was no Lucifer, uh, because there were no angels. God created everything in heaven and earth, and all that in them is uh, in the six days of creation, which included the angels. I know that for years it has been taught in churches that angels existed from way on back in eternity past, and that is not true. They are created. How do I know that? Well, I'll give you one verse. 
It's in Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's turn to it because I, I want to prove to you that I'm, I'm not just, this is not just something I've invented. Um, Ezekiel chapter 28. And let's just begin reading at verse 11. Because here the Lord is describing Lucifer. He's describing Satan. And he says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, when you're reading this, you have to understand how God writes. And all throughout human history, Lucifer has indwelt certain individuals. And one of them was the king of Tyre's. Well, if you follow the logic, the logic, you know that the king of Tyrus was not in Eden. And so you shouldn't have a whole lot of trouble putting all this together because Satan has had the same plan as God whose plan was to give us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Lucifer is not an originator of new thoughts. The only thing he can do is counterfeit what the Bible says. And so the counterfeit of what the, devil, uh, what, uh, the Lord tells us is, uh, is what, as it pertains to Satan, is demon possession. Demon possession. Or the actual embodiment of Satan himself in a human being. And that's who the Antichrist is. He's the embodiment of Satan that is dwelling in him and moving him to do everything that he does. And so Satan is, uh, is an imitator of, of God's program because it's the only thing he can do. Because God's program is fixed for all eternity. And there's no way you can get around it or deceive by some other way. You have to try to deceive by what is written in the book, which is eternal. And so, verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. You know at that point he's not talking about the king of Tyre's. He's talking about something deeper than that. And so he goes on to explain, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. You see that word? Angels have not always been. They were created. You cannot find in the Bible anywhere 
a revelation from heaven that says that God created any personality prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's not in the book. And so I'm telling you that in churches, and I was subject to this kind of era, where I was impacted by the tradition of men. There are traditional uh, forms of understanding uh, that have been in the churches for ages. And I believe that one of the biggest problems that we have when it comes to Bible study is preachers and Bible teachers who uh, read other people's books and go and listen to other people preach and then go and parrot what they heard the other person say rather than going back to the only reference point we have that will always have it right and that is the word of God. You've got to go back to the Bible. And so the, the only thing that I've ever asked is that, okay, if we come in here and we talk about things that we haven't thought about that carefully before, be like the Bereans that were born more noble than those from Thessalonica who searched the scriptures to see whether those things are so. Now, we've got some carpenters in here. Uh, we got one sitting up here, Bobby Burley. And he'll tell you that what I'm fixing to tell you is the truth. It's what's called a tape measure or a yardstick. And if you want to cut a 12-inch board and get it right, you got to go to that reference point. You can't imagine and say, well, I think that's about 12 inches and cut it. You can't build a house that way. Uh, if you're going to build a house and it's going to be square on the later on, you better cut everything exactly right. And you got to have a reference point to do it, and that's the yardstick or the ruler or the tape measure. And so you got 12 inches on there, and that's the standard, and that's the reference point. And so if you cut off a board 12 inches by the tape measure, it'll be 12 inches exactly. But if you take that 12-inch board that you just cut off, and you say, well, I'm going to save a little time. I'm going to just lay that thing up here and draw me a line. And then I'll take that board that I cut off and I'll use it to draw me a line. And you keep on going like that. Uh, your house will not be square and your windows will not fit. Because every time you cut by something else, you're getting away from the reference point, the standard. You've got to always go to the reference point if you're going to get every cut right. And that's true when it comes to the study of this Bible. You can't go by what some other preacher has said in some other church because he may not be studying the Bible as carefully as he should. He may not be following God's logic. He may not have the burden of the Lord even. Jeremiah chapter 3. God was critical and told Jeremiah, you go tell those pastors, you go tell those prophets to not use that word burden anymore. Because the burden of the Lord is the carpenter 
that knows the only way you can get it right is go to the scripture. Go to the reference point. You have to get close to God. And the way you get close to God is reading his book and studying this book and nothing else when it comes to knowing eternal truth and getting close to God. I've told you this before. When you take this book and you put it up here like this, it is, a, it is an opportunity to get closer to God than John was when he laid his head on his bosom. Because this is the innermost self of God. The bosom of God was external. He laid his head on his bosom. But this takes you inside the mind of God. Inside his spirit. His very soul, the Word of God. And this is what God has given us, is His innermost self. And so I hope that we'll remember this. And, and, and anytime somebody is up here speaking, I wouldn't be quick to believe everything that I've heard, said. You can listen to somebody and be a lot safer in believing what they say because they said it. But if you want to know for sure that what is being said is right, remember the Bereans. They understood something that's very important here. And so in Ezekiel 28 and verse 13, <clears throat> we learn when this archangel um, came into being. It was in the six days of creation because there is no other time period in the revelation of God's word that he created anything. He said that he created heaven and earth and all that in them is in the six days of creation. And so this tradition that has been taught in churches about angels in times past is absolutely not true. It's not, it's not true. So all throughout Scripture there is warnings in Matthew and in Mark especially. Uh, the Lord rebuked the Pharisees for teaching the traditions of men. What was he talking about? The commandments of men. The Pharisees uh, were critical of the disciples because they didn't wash their hands. And the Lord spoke to them and said, that's not in Scripture. That's a commandment of men. And so he scolded them for their tradition. We're entering into a month of the year... <coughs> that is absolutely saturated with tradition. I think that I told you this last week, I can't remember for sure, I was talking to a dear friend, a Christian, who loves the Lord, who did not think that it was wrong to mix Santa Claus in your Christian life along with the message of Jesus Christ. 
And the reason he was saying that way was because of tradition. When I came along in the Baptist church, one of the deacons in the church dressed up in a Santa Claus suit. And they had all of us young people sitting in the church in the front. And the other deacons came in and said, now, you've got to be very, very quiet. I'll never forget it. And so the question was, why? And here's what we were told. Santa Claus is not coming on a sleigh with reindeer. You know what they said? He's coming in a helicopter. And he's going to land right outside. But he's not going to come in if you're not absolutely quiet. So we were sitting there believing it. I mean, believing it. What is a eight or ten year old kid, you know, when adults are telling you these kinds of things? And he was going to come in with his big bag and he was going to give gifts to the people sitting there. This Christian that I was talking to thought that was not going to be a problem. I can tell you that there are Baptist churches all over Moore County. They're going to be celebrating Santa Claus at Christmas. What an insult to the Creator God. What an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ. What theft, what robbery that is of the glory that belongs exclusively to Him. A counterfeit. That's what Santa Claus is. He's a counterfeit. It's Satanism. That's what it is. We've even had problems in this church in our daycare because parents would bring their kids down here and, and they would bring little items, you know, with Santa Claus on it and, and things to give to the other children and we refused to receive it. And we had some parents, I remember years ago, they got angry with us because we took that position. It's a tradition of men. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. People will get mad with you if you don't continue to teach the tradition of men. They sure will. They'll get angry with you. And so the Lord had given me in this relationship I have with this person I'm talking about a closeness in such a way that I could tell him right there on the spot, well, I don't agree, and I think you're wrong. And the basis for doing that is the Bible. And so I went through and I explained some things to him from Scripture about what Christmas is really all about. And Satan's strategy, how he tries to get us caught up in the traditions of men and all of this kind of stuff. Things that are not scriptural, they're not right. And after I finished talking to him, he looked me right in the eye and he said, uh, he said, Dwight, he said, I appreciate you telling me that. Sure did. Appreciate you telling me that. Well, I didn't pursue it any longer to know whether he would... Uh, 
you know, follow through with some of his plans over Christmas to dress up like Santa Claus and go and give gifts. He thought that the justification of it was Christmas is about giving. It's about giving. But if the spirit of giving is based on a myth, how does Jesus Christ feel about that? How does he think about that? Well, somebody that knows him knows how he thinks about it. It's blasphemy. Santa Claus is absolute, pure blasphemy. And it's satanic to the core. And it's a tradition that should never be a part of this ministry, ever. Based on the word of God. And so, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading this first verse is contrary and in great contrast to the first creation of heaven and earth, there will be observers to see the creator create the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be you and me. I mean, think about it. How can that not be true? I mean, God has given us everlasting life. We're going to be alive. We're going to be with him when he does this. We're going to see him speak and create a new heaven and a new earth. Well... I think that's part of the unfolding revelation. And where did I get it? Right there. Revelation chapter 21. Is it possible for anybody, I don't care how long you've been saved, I don't care how much you know about the Bible, how can anybody take the abundance of statements in the Word of God and say that that's not true? I don't think it's possible. Because we are with him. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. When did that begin? I said it in the church just the other day in relation to Nancy passing away that God was right there when she passed away and took her right then, right to heaven. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Listen, that's a promise. When you die, he's there. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Do we believe that, or is that just a pretty little uh, statement? When are we going to think about the statements and enter into the statements and own the statements? How can a person face death if they know they're going to die and experience comfort if they don't enter into it and claim it? God said it. Are we going to believe it? Well, I think we should. And so if he's never going to leave us nor forsake us, where will we be when he is creating the new heaven and the new earth? 
follow the logic. We're going to be with him when he does it. So that's uh, an amazing kind of thing. And I think that as we continue to see and look into the unfolding revelation, as Paul wrote the Corinthians, we still haven't seen with our eyes and our ears still haven't heard the things that God has prepared in the future for them that love him. And so on into eternity. From this eternal God is going to be an eternal unfolding. It's never going to end. Now the Bible gives us a lot of insight into what it's going to be like. And I'd like to read on down just a little bit. In verse 2 of Revelation 21, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is uh, uh, referring to what the Lord Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come to you. I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. There again is another evidence of our being there to see God create the new heaven and the new earth. What, a, what an amazing God. Amen. How good he, he is that he would include us in seeing this kind of glory. Of what the glory of what God can do, and we're going to see it with our eyes. That's amazing. And so, verse two is something that reinforces John chapter fourteen. Then in verse three, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, "Behold." The tabernacle of God is with men. Well, the tabernacle of God is to be thought of in two ways. It's not just a building. <clears throat> it's a person. Kind of like truth is not just a doctrine. It's a person. Jesus Christ said, I am the way. The way is not just a path. It's not just east, west, north or south. It's a person. The way is Jesus Christ. It's a person. The truth is a person. The life is not a state of being. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He's everything. And that's how the Lord wants us to think about it. And so the Lord is telling us here in verse 3 that he's going to tabernacle with us. And he's not talking about just a building, the, the new Jerusalem that comes down. It, he's revealing himself. You've got to go deeper. 
And understand that he's, he's really ultimately talking about how he is going to be with us and he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And we're going to see his person. We're going to look him in the eyes. <clears throat> Verse 4 is further unfolding revelation. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. No more death. Okay, well, what do you understand about that? No more death. No more tears. No more crying. What, what's going to be happening to us that we would never cry again? We would never have pain again? Death would be non-existent anywhere. <clears throat> well, then he goes on to say, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Now notice what he says. For the former things are passed away. Okay, what do you do? with a statement like that when it comes to the tradition of men and what's traditionally taught in churches, especially about the cross of Calvary, especially about the nail-scarred hands and the scars in his feet and the blood that he shed. Our understanding of the everlasting covenant. How do you fit all this in with a statement like this where the Lord very plainly says the former things are passed away? Well, let's look at something that goes a little deeper in explaining that. Turn to Jeremiah. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 3. And I want you to remember that I'm not the one that said this. The God who created the worlds and gave us this book is the one that said it, what I'm fixing to read to you right now. And the question is, what are we going to do with it in view of tradition and what is traditionally taught in churches? Look at verse 16. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done anymore. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is the ark? It's coffin. Look it up. That's what it means. Did you know that the ark of Noah 
if you do the studying on it and figure it out, the pitch and so forth that kept the world outside is all a picture of atonement. You can't find hardly any theologian anywhere that will not explain to you that the Ark of Noah had to do with the cross of Calvary and uh, our salvation by entering in to the Ark. The Ark is a picture of Jesus Christ and entering into Him, entering into the Ark is a place of safety that will save us from what? The wrath of God. Why did the ark have one door? Because Jesus Christ said, I am the door. But you know what there was more of in that ark? And I'm going to throw this in without trying to repeat too much of what I've taught in the past couple of Sundays. You know what there was more of in that ark than there were people? Animals. Two of every kind. And where were they? In the ark. Well, when you tie that in with Romans chapter 8, you can understand perfectly what the Lord is saying. And I'm telling you, at this point in my studies of the Bible, I have not run across any person that can sit down with me and convince me with Scripture that what has been said about animals in terms of how God thinks about them and his future plan for animals that not only have died but will be born into the future. And Romans chapter 8 makes it absolutely clear that these animals died innocent. And God shows them as types of his own innocence. And I believe these animals are going to live again just as sure as I'm standing here. And you think God is not that big? Oh, yes, he is. You think that his heaven and earth, his heaven of heavens that has no border? I mean, even Henry Morris said that he believed that we would be... Uh, going out into the cosmos and the galaxies and the other planets and maybe even um, participating in some program that God has for us when it comes to this infinite spance. You think there's not enough room in what God creates which is eternal? To have his will done and God never intended death. He's not the author of death. And there will be no more death and there will be no remembrance of death. Okay. If there's going to be no remembrance of death, there's going to be no remembrance of the ark. And he said it right here. Do you think that we're going to be meditating on the cross of Calvary in eternity? Now, whoa, look out. You say, Dwight, there you go, man. You're getting off into something that, wow, never heard that before. I want you to tell me, 
how can God tell us that he will remember our sin no more? And with his new bride and his wife, Israel, that eventually comes back to him according to his will, returning to me for I am married unto you. Do you think that Jesus Christ is going to be walking around with nail-scarred hands, bloodless, which is always consistently a symbol of death? When Jesus Christ reversed that in Revelation chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. Do you think that Jesus Christ is going to have no blood in his body and he's going to have those nail-scarred hands for all eternity to come? I believe personally, until I get convinced by somebody that can show me the scriptures, that Jesus Christ is not going to have nail-scarred hands in eternity to come, in the new heavens and in the new earth. And he's going to have his eternal blood flowing in his veins. And the Bible says, and we will be like him. God is not going to create us with a new body that does not have eternal blood in it. Because the absence of blood is a symbol consistently through Scripture of death. And you go back and you read Leviticus Chapter 23, the life of the flesh is in the blood. <laughs> it's so simple to understand. At least it is to me. We're going to be alive forevermore. When God created Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life and blood began to flow in his veins. That was God's original plan and will for man. And when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem's manger, he had blood flowing in his veins. The death of Christ and the shedding of blood always carries the idea of death. But the thing that I have not seen nor ear heard nor really even thought about before is that God would marry us, take us as his bride, and as it says in Isaiah 54, read it for yourself. For all eternity he will remember the bride as having never sinned. Never. That's what being born again from the dead is all about. That's the beauty of being born again all over. Holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. How can we not see that? I believe it. I sure do. I believe it. I believe in all eternity to come, God will never remember our sin why, if that's true, would there ever be items there 
like a, an altar, a sacrifice, or an ark that is a picture of the coffin, or a basin that somehow or other some of the theologians think is going to contain the blood of the Son of God that died for us on Calvary's cross. No, I don't believe it. I believe that blood is going to be in his body and he's going to be alive forevermore, which is always symbolic all throughout Scripture. It's consistent as it can be. Blood flowing in the body is a picture of life. Blood shed from the body is always consistently a symbol of death. Always. And Jesus Christ will have nothing to do with death in eternity. It's not going to be in his mind and it's not going to be in ours. And if we're going to have the mind of Christ and he doesn't remember it, how are we going to remember it? And that's why Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16 is so important. He says the ark of the covenant of the Lord, uh, excuse me, uh, and it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increase in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall it be done anymore. Now I want you to think about something. You get married, but before that happened, there was a lot of troubled waters in the relationship where you had done terrible things like the, the bridegroom had asked you to marry him and you said you would but you ran off with somebody else had sex with them maybe went off with somebody else had sex with them too You finally begin to realize how you had messed up, and you finally come back to the one that said he loved you and he marries you. What kind of relationship would it be in eternity to come if the groom would go up to you from time to time, say like after a billion years, and say, I really love you, but I still remember those things that you did. Folks, that ain't going to happen. That is not going to happen. The thing that the Lord wants us to look into is how perfect we are in His sight. And the previous world will not even come into mind the cross of Calvary is always a remembrance of our sin and our transgression. And I don't think that's going to be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. I do not. There's going to be no tears. No sorrow. No crying. 
no remembrance of former things at all. And so this helps us to enter into the distinctiveness of the cross of Calvary and Pentecost. Because you see, the cross of Calvary has to do with all the horrible stuff, the horrible message from heaven. But Pentecost takes us into the new heaven and the new earth. In what way? Because in the new heaven and the new earth, the life that we're going to have for eternity is his. It's going to be Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's Pentecost. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're living by his faith, his mind, what he thinks about, and what he has said he will never think about. And he never will. In all eternity to come. So why would there be, what, think of the inconsistency of there being a remembrance of nail-scarred hands in the new heaven and new earth. I don't believe it. I don't believe that's what we're going to see. A basin with his blood in it. Ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. That kind of thinking and that kind of teaching, in my opinion, is a tradition of men. It's not taking God's word for what it says. Folks, the glory that's going to be revealed, that we could be that innocent as though we had never existed before we were resurrected from the dead, that is how the Lord wants us to think about it. When he told Nicodemus, marvel not that I say, say unto thee, you must be born again. He was taking him into Revelation chapter 21, and the new heaven and new earth. Born a second time, holy, unblameable, unreprovable. In his sight. Is that an honest statement? That Paul wrote to Colossians? Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. Is that an honest statement from God? He cannot lie. So. Oh my. Wow. Wow. Um, let's see. Look at, uh, we'll start with this, Isaiah 43. This, this is all over the place, by the way, what I'm talking to you about. Isaiah 43, 
And let's look at verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. If we had the time, I could show you several verses that say that. I will not remember thy sins. Do you think that with his bride in all eternity to come, there's going to be anything in terms of words or symbols such as the ark, which is a symbol of death, nail-scarred hands? That is totally inconsistent logic. And it is not what God is teaching us in his word. I don't believe. So we'll come back and visit these things again. Uh, the rest of this chapter, verse chapter 21, is amazing. And I want to get into some of the things that are really amazing about it. And I'd like for you to read ahead and think about this. It talks about the wall. He's talking about the wall that's going to surround the new Jerusalem. And he talks about the gates in the wall. And then he talks about the foundation of the wall. But he's talking about the wall. I want you to notice that the gates have to do with the 12 tribes. And the foundation has to do with the 12 disciples. And I want you to remember Ephesians chapter 2 and how that God would make of one the Jew and the Gentile. And you see it right here in the new Jerusalem and the new uh, heavens and the new earth. A unity between the Jew and the Gentile, which is a whole human race. Jew and Gentile is the whole human race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whole world, Jews and Gentiles. What did that do to the tradition with the Jews? When he was talking to Nicodemus about God so loved the world. Boy, that shattered their tradition. They hated the Gentiles. They hated the Samaritans. It destroys prejudice because God created everybody in his own image. And he said, inasmuch as you do it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it also unto me.